You remember the game Simon Says, don't you? It's a game that could break out anytime, any place, on any elementary school playground. It's a simple game. It requires intentional listening, spontaneous obedience. In order to stay in the game, you have to only and exactly do what Simon tells you to do. I've never met Simon, but apparently he wields a lot of persuasive power over people. He says it and they do it. You know what would be fun this morning? If you and I played a rousing round of Simon Says. So let's stand to our feet. Why are you standing to your feet? Simon didn't say stand to your feet. Simon says, wait, raise your right hand. Simon says, raise your left hand. Now put them down. Oh, you're getting better. Simon says, put your hands down. Simon says, get out your checkbook. Simon says, write a check to the church. Simon says, add a zero to that check you're writing to the church. Now some of y'all just stop playing Simon Says. You and I didn't come to church to play Simon Says. But I will tell you, in the game called Life, it's pretty wise for you and for me to engage in the Savior Says. In order for us to do well in this game, it's imperative that we do what the Savior tells us to do. And we say what the Savior tells us to say. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Today we continue our glorious study of that wonderful book of Ephesians. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 5, allow me to begin at verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful enough to mention what was done disobedient with the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. 
For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God, you may be seated. The big idea of the entire passage can be found in the opening phrase of the text. You and I are to be imitators of God. The word imitator is the Greek word mimete, which from we get the English word mimic. You and I are to be godly mimics. There are two primary ways that we are to mimic God according to this passage. We are to mimic God in a life of love, verses 1 to 7. We are, secondly, to mimic God in a life of light, verses 8 to 14. When Paul says that we are to mimic God in love, he is telling us that we need to have agape love. That's the word that he uses there. The word agape meaning it's undeserved, it's unmerited, it's unending favor. What God has displayed to us, then we ought to mimic and display to the Lord and to one another. He further qualifies this love by saying it's the love that Christ had for us when Christ offered himself up as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice unto the Lord. This is a love that is marked by giving, not getting. It's a love that is described by commitment, not self-satisfaction. It's a love that results in service to others and not self-gratification. It's a love that is described and marked by self-denial and sacrifice. This is the love that God has for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This type of agape love that God has for us, we are called and compelled to have to the Lord and to one another. In good preacher fashion, beginning in verse 3, the apostle tells the church what to do by telling them what not to do. He says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual morality, impurity, or greed. Verse 4, no obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. All of that is out of place for the holy people of God. Verse 6, because of such things, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are disobedient. Don't miss the fragrant comparison that Paul writes. He says that our love, as we mimic the Lord, ought to be a fragrance of purity, just like the pure sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered himself up on your behalf and mine. We ought to have a fragrant love one for the other. We ought not have not even a hint of foul stench of perversion. So he says, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea, from which we get the English derivative pornography. It's a general term. It, it means any and all sexual sin. He says, among you, there must not be any pornea. It was very common in Ephesus 
for there to be immoral lifestyles. In fact, uh, in Ephesus, it was pretty much anything goes. It was common to have adulterous relationships. A man sleeping with his servant girls was commonplace. Incest, homosexuality, prostitution, quote-unquote sacred sexual encounters at pagan temples, all of that was normal. In fact, one historian said that in Ephesus, there were no moral boundaries. It was literally a place where anything goes. I can well imagine that as you entered the city of Ephesus, there was a billboard that said, what happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. Anybody could do whatever they wanted to do. And this is why at least one Greek philosopher said that in Ephesus, the morals are lower than the animals. In fact, the inhabitants that live therein are only fit to be drowned. It was commonplace for pornea to be on display every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Pornea, sexual sin of any kind. He also says there ought not to be any impurity. That word impurity means filthiness or unclean. It usually is used to describe the thought process of an individual. So what Paul is saying is not only must there not be any sexual activity, but not even any sexual thoughts that are uh, out of bounds uh, according to the scriptures. That you ought to put into check your thoughts, your fantasies, your ideas, so that none of them are impure, unholy, filthy. Then he also speaks that there ought not to be any greed. The word greed literally is covetousness. It's a word that means to want something that doesn't belong to you. To want more of something that you have enough of already. In America, we call that marketing and advertising, don't we? It's to want something that you don't really need. It's to want something that you have enough of already. Do you understand what Paul is doing? He is peeling back the layers of humanity. He's saying that your version of love, it ought not to be uh, tainted with uh, perversion. It ought not to be permeated uh, with uh, immorality. That your, your immorality, your, your outward activity must not have sexual immorality. Not even your mental thoughts. For your mental thoughts need to be pure. And even your heart, the heart condition must not be gripped by greed. Paul goes on and he says there ought not even be any obscenity that comes from your lips. It's not proper for the man or woman of God. The word obscenity, it, it, it does mean a foul language, foul speech. Yes, it, it means cursing and cussing. That ought not to be something that is commonplace for the child of God. We ought not to be individuals that curse. Yes, that's, that's what the word means, but, but it means more than that. It even means the content of our speech. The best way I can describe what that word obscenity means is, is really, it's been described for us by a contemporary politician who just rendered it locker room talk. This is what Paul is meaning. There ought not to be locker room talk that comes out of your lips and mine. He also speaks of foolish talk. That word that's rendered foolish talk is a compound Greek word. It literally means stupid speech. It's a compound word. The first part of the word is moros, 
from which we get the word moron. And the last part of the word is logos. It's the word speech or talk. So there ought not to be any idiotic speech or, or stupid speech or dumb talk that comes out of our mouth. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, specifically, that was the word that was used to describe the language of the gutter. It was the language of the drunkard. And so Paul is saying that, that uh, you ought not to be like the drunkard person. You ought not to be like the drunk who's just uh, very loud and vulgar and vile in his speech. It's kind of like, um, like the people that I met last week in Nashville, Tennessee at the SEC basketball tournament. Janelle and I were uh, downtown on Broadway. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of alcohol that flows in the streets of downtown Nashville. And I've got to be honest with you, a lot of great Kentucky fans get inebriated, and when they get drunk, they become morons. <laughs> it was like the guy who came up to the glass window. Janelle and I were eating a delightful barbecue dinner. Of course, every barbecue dinner must be delightful, right? And so we were eating a delightful barbecue dinner. We had that table right there to view the street. And this uh, rather intoxicated individual came up and proceeded to stick his tongue on the glass of that window for an awkward amount of time. And then he proceeded to do some uh, vulgar gyrations of which I looked at him and think, thought to myself, what are you doing? And all of a sudden, Jane Ellen says, don't look at him, don't look at him, don't look at him. <laughs> and for some reason, we lost our appetite that night. I don't know why, but the barbecue just didn't taste as, as good because what that was, that's an example of foolish talk. That's the language of a drunkard. That's the activity of a moron. And Paul says, that not ought to describe your life and mine. He also says there ought not to be any coarse joking. That word means uh, sexual innuendos. You know the individuals are trying to be funny, but it seems that everything reminds them of a body part of the male or female anatomy. And they try to point this out in a cute fashion, trying to make everybody laugh and giggle. That's coarse joking. You bump into those guys a lot of times in junior high school, don't you? And tragically, many of those individuals, they grow up, but they never grow out, of course, joking. It dominates their speech. Now, Paul says, because of such things, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are disobedient. It's not boys being boys. It's sinners being sinners. And God is intolerant towards sin. And he says, because of pornea, because of sexual perversion, because of coarse joking, because of sexual innuendos, because of foolish talk that comes out of our mouths, because of those things, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are disobedient. Now, my question this morning is, why in the world would Paul have to speak to the church about these issues? Why would Paul have to spend so much sacred space of text to talk to the church at Ephesus, First Baptist Church of Ephesus? Why would he have to spend so much time speaking to them about sexual perversion? And why would he have to spend so much time talking to them about improper speech that comes out of their mouth? The only conclusion I can come to is that the people 
in the church at Ephesus were guilty of sexual perversion. They were guilty of pornea. Their lives were dominated and dictated by obscenity, impurity, greed, selfishness, foolishness. Time has passed, but not a whole lot has changed, has it? I want to uh, connect the dots for you. And this morning, I want to do it in one specific way. The adult entertainment industry in America is a $13 billion business each year. Numerous studies have been done, and they all reach the same conclusions. Surveys have reported time and time again that 50 to 60% of self-proclaiming religious men and 20% of self-proclaiming religious women are addicted to pornography. These are self-proclaiming religious individuals, one out of every two men, one out of every five women. In our culture today, the first time a person is introduced to a nude picture of pornography is at the average age of 11. We have teenagers and adults who cannot go a day without staring at pornographic material on their smartphones and their computers. I think uh, this is why pornea, pornography, has been labeled in our culture the crack cocaine of sexual addiction. It's labeled that because of the highly addictive nature of pornography. It's just like any other addictive habit. What satisfied yesterday won't satisfy tomorrow. What uh, brought the euphoria yesterday is not enough for the same fix tomorrow. So what started out as an occasional glance becomes something that is much more frequent. And then, if it goes unchecked, it becomes something that dominates every waking moment of solitude. Parents, if your child has a smart device, a phone, a tablet, a computer, and they have unguarded internet capability, you are a fool. Now, don't bristle up. Not my Johnny. Not my Sally. Yeah, your Johnny and your Sally. One out of every two religious men, one out of every five religious women addicted to pornography. When the visual is no longer satisfying, then there becomes an overwhelming drive to act out upon that which has been seen. 
The proof and the evidence of the reality of that statement is that in some places in our culture, human sex trafficking has become a greater desire than even drug trafficking. So that uh, we'll call them the quote-unquote pushers. Those individuals understand that it's far more lucrative to sell people versus selling drugs. Because there's an there's a unquenchable desire. There's a hunger for more and more perversion. The more perverse, the better. And we live in a culture that is spiraling down into a cesspool of smut, which is only just a few clicks away, 30 seconds away from our phone, or right there on the corner even in our community and state, country, and world. Apparently, this pornea is problematic in our culture. It's also problematic in the congregation. But apparently, it's even problematic in the pulpit It was Rick Warren who did a study a couple of years ago. He surveyed 1,351 pastors. 54% of those pastors admitted to viewing pornography in the last year. 30% in the last 30 days. The Fuller Institute did an independent study of a 1,000 pastors, and from that anonymous study, it was reported that 37% of those respondents anonymously admitted to the reality that they have had an improper sexual relationship or behavior with someone within the church. 37%. We've got a massive problem. One out of every two religious men, one out of every five religious women, at least three or four out of every ten pastors. These numbers are overwhelming, staggering, numbing, disheartening. It's pornea. Why does the apostle have to speak on this subject to the church? Because the church is just as vile and graphic in their sexual perversion as the culture. Why do I have to speak about this today? Because the church is still just as graphic and vile as the culture in which we live. So my friend, if you find yourself today in that seductive web of sexual perversion, I want you to know two things. Number one, you are not alone. Number two, there is help. You think you're alone, but you're not. The statistics bear it out. You are not alone today. What is done in the darkness of secrecy you think is so much only your problem. It's just you, nobody else. I'm telling you, you are not alone and there is help. This morning, I want you to boldly come forward at the invitation and just ask Christ for help. I want you to boldly ask him right now. I want you to come forward out of boldness and say, Lord Jesus, I need your help today because I promise you, brother, there is help. I promise you you sister there is healing and you think to yourself I ain't budging today I'm not moving today I'm not doing anything I'm not even going to glance at anybody today because of the judgmental glances of others because of the critical comments of other people listen my friend you won't get that from me 
I won't judge you. And I won't be critical of you. And if there's some jerk in this crowd who gives a critical eye towards you because you're being bold with your confession of sin, I promise you that jerk has deeper issues than you do, my friend. It is God's mercy that you're here today hearing this message. It is God's mercy as he proclaims unto you, here's another opportunity for you, my friend, to repent, for you to trust and to turn, for you to trust Jesus uh, even over this, especially over this, and to turn from your wicked ways. My friend, if you are a follower of Christ, then I want you to know that you have the power of eternity at your disposal. I want you to know there is help in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all of their guilty stains. Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came this morning to rescue you, to seek and to save and to set you free. Jesus would not set you free in order for you to go back into bondage. And if you're caught in the web of sexual perversion, you know that's an imprisonment. That is a bondage. And so I want to tell you this morning that there is help in the name of Jesus because I just believe that there is power in the name of Christ. I believe there is power in the name of Christ because he can break every chain he can break every chain I don't know about you but I ask him this morning let me hear the chains falling let me hear those chains falling because Jesus is greater than any addiction that you may have God's grace is greater than the grossness of your sin I came this morning to tell you there is help and healing in Christ you're here today and that is not the sin that entangles you maybe that's not what trips you if that's not you it's by the grace of God it's not because you're better it's not because you are just a more favored person it's because of the grace of God, that's not you. And if that's not you, if you have not been held by that sin's dread sway, then in this very moment, I want you to pray for your siblings in Christ. I mean, the sermon's not over, so don't get all excited. <laughs> the sermon's not over, but you start praying. You start praying right now. Because God wants to break the chains of some of your brothers and sisters today. And I, for one, believe he can do it. My friend, you're not alone. There is help. And we want to help you be set free in Christ. So Paul says, mimic God. Mimic God in your life of love. But secondly, mimic God in your life of light. He says beginning in verses 8 and following, you were darkness, but now you are light. You were darkness. That's past tense. Um, it, 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 it's a 
proclamation of not only your identity, but also your activity. You were darkness. That describes who you were, but it no longer describes you now. But now you are light. I want you to notice that Paul does not say you were in darkness or you were of darkness, but you were darkness. And on the flip side, he says, but now you are light. Not that you are in light or you're of light, but you are light. This is the proclamation of your identity. And identity always impacts activity. Because if you know who you are, then you know how to act. And you are light. You are light of the world. This is the only analogy that Jesus uses of himself and his disciples. He doesn't share any of his other messianic metaphors. Yet in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. Here in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, you are light. Stop and think about it. Jesus doesn't share his other analogies. He doesn't say you are the bread of life or you are the good shepherd or you are the gate. He doesn't say you are resurrection and life. He doesn't say you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you. He doesn't say you are the vine and I am the branches. But on this occasion, he says, I am the light of the world. And then he also flips it and says, you are the light of the world. This is who we are. So how do you know if you're a child of light? Paul says, live as children of light. How do you know if you're a child of light? And many would answer, well, I mean, if you make a decision for Christ, if you walk down an aisle, if you go through the waters of baptism, if you show up at church occasionally, if you give some of your money away, if you try to do more good than bad, then you're a child of light. And certainly those phrases would describe a genuine child of light, but you do understand that those things could be done by a reprobate. Those things could be done by the unregenerate in their flesh. It is possible for somebody to make a decision and fill out a card, walk down an aisle and get a little bit wet. It is possible for somebody to come to church every once in a while and try to give some of their money away just to make themselves feel better and to try to do some good things because it's a good thing to do. It is possible for a person to do those things, check off all those boxes and still be unregenerate. So Paul says, let me give you a more authentic, true test of faith. How do you know if you're a child of light? Look at verse 9. Because you produce fruit of light. What does he mean by that? All goodness, righteousness, and truth. The word goodness means moral excellence. It's how we relate one to the other. It's how we relate to other people. We relate with moral excellence. Righteousness. The biblical understanding of righteousness is twofold. There is imputed righteousness, there is practiced righteousness. Imputed righteousness is, is a term that means that God credits the innocence of Christ as belonging to us, independent of anything we've done. And God has imputed his righteousness. He's imputed the innocence of Christ. That when he looks at us, he sees us clothed with the innocent standing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a moment to get excited about. Because God does this independent of you, of me, and totally dependent upon Christ, his accomplished work on the cross. It's imputed righteousness. In light of that imputed righteousness, then you and I live out practiced righteousness. Because we're declared innocent in the sight of God, we long to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. We want to be righteous. We want to do righteousness. 
not as a means of salvation, but as gratitude for salvation. Because it's been imputed unto us, then it's practiced by us before a watching world. Then he also says the fruit of truth. The word truth means integrity. It means trustworthiness. It could be summarized by the popular phrase of D.O. Moody, that character is who you are when no one's watching. Stop and think about what Paul is saying. He's saying these are things that can only be produced by the genuine child of light. Because only a genuine child of light can produce goodness, moral excellence. That's how we relate to others. Only a genuine child of God can have righteousness imputed by God, practiced by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine. That is how we relate unto the Lord. And then truth. That's how we relate to ourselves. That when no one else is watching, this is who we are. My friends, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you know who you are, then you know how to act. You are a child of light. You are a child of light, therefore you produce fruit of the light, which is goodness, righteousness, and truth. So you may be thinking, Pastor, are you saying that I can't sin? No, I'm not saying that at all. Because even a child of light will occasionally dabble in darkness. Because Jesus says in in John's gospel, the light has come. Here's the verdict. The light has come. But men love darkness more than light. There are times when even, even the genuine believer sins. But here's the difference. When the genuine believer, the child of light, sins, he immediately, she immediately takes it and exposes it to the light. Exposes it unto Christ. Exposes it unto the light of the word of God. And immediately goes and says, Lord, please forgive me of my sin and help me to repent. My friends, I'm telling you, you cannot say, I trust Jesus and persist in this life of perversion. It's impossible. If you say, I trust Jesus, there must be a turning from sin. And you cannot turn from sin unless there's first a genuine trusting of Jesus as Savior. So the true child of light says, I'm going to take the deeds of darkness and I'm going to subject them to the light and expose them to the light. For what's the purpose of light? To dispel darkness. Now here's the ultimate question. Why do we do this? I grew up in church. And the church that I grew up in was very good at telling me how to live, what to do, what not to do. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were great at telling me what to do and, uh, and what I shouldn't do. But there was always a disconnect of the why. Why am I supposed to do this? Why am I not supposed to do that? And if I was ever bold enough to voice that question, because I said so was usually the response. Why do I have to do that? Because I said so. Why can I not do that? Because I said so. I mean, it's pretty much in the conversation. And that was true not only in my home, but also even in the church. Now, if the pastor ever stood up to make the why connection of why do we do what we do, if he ever did that, either number one, I wasn't listening. Not that you guys ever do that, but there were times that I would not listen to the pastor. I wouldn't advise that, teenagers, but there were times that I would not listen. Or if he spoke the why connection, it wasn't clear enough. So Paul wants to make very clear, not only what we ought to do, but why we ought to do it. 
So he gives two reasons, two why connections. First, because God is our daddy. And secondly, because big brother Jesus got up out of the grave. These two reasons form bookends around this passage. Verse 1, you are to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Every child who knows that he's loved finds it very natural to want to be like daddy. You know this to be true in your earthly relationships. Every child who knows that he is loved longs to be like his daddy. If he knows daddy loves him, then he longs to be like his daddy. If, if you had a father who loved you, then you know what it is for the son to want to grow up and be like dad and for the daughter to want to grow up and marry somebody just like dad. And so Paul is using that analogy. Since you are loved by God, you want to be like God because God is our daddy. All throughout the Ephesian letter, he's been talking about how we've been adopted into God's family. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Adoption is a, is a legal transaction. One who had no father now has a father. And no child can stand before a judge and say, hey, I want to be adopted. But an adult, an individual can go before a judge and say, hey, I want to adopt somebody. Adoption is declared by the will of the father. My friends, I'm telling you that God is your daddy. He is a loving heavenly father. And he has sovereignly selected you. He's chosen you long before you ever chose him. He's adopted you into his family you've been chosen by God and your God is a loving daddy and even with me saying that I realize that there's some people who really struggle with the concept of God being our heavenly father and I get it the reason is because your earthly dad was a lousy excuse of a parent I understand that let it be known today, and I hope that you always understand this and remember this. Our perception of the Heavenly Father is largely shaped by our perception of our earthly father. If your earthly father loved you and was kind to you, and was present in your life, it will be easy for you to transfer those thoughts to the Heavenly Father who loves us and is kind and is present. But if you had an earthly dad who abused you and abandoned you and neglected you, intuitively you will assume that your heavenly daddy will abandon you and abuse you and neglect you. If you could never please your earthly dad, you will automatically believe you can never please your heavenly dad. If your earthly dad walked out on you and mom, you will automatically intuitively believe that your heavenly daddy will at one point walk out on you and your family. This morning, my friend, you've got to trust me. You just got to believe me that our God is a good daddy. Our God is a loving heavenly father. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He 
doesn't love you based on your performance. He loves you based on his passion. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. He is a good, good daddy. He is always there for you. He will never turn his back on you. You, my friend, can trust him. And if you know that you're loved by God, it is natural for you to want to be like God. So Paul says you mimic God because God is your good daddy. Secondly, you mimic God because big brother Jesus got up out of the grave. This is verse 14. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise up, for Christ will shine on you. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2 says, There is great darkness in the land, thick darkness upon all the peoples of the earth, but the Lord rises upon them. The Lord, written in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's Yahweh himself, but the Lord rises upon them. My friends, there was a Friday when darkness covered the land. It was a thick darkness. It was a, such a darkness that it was eerie and it could be felt. And Jesus the Christ was writhing in pain on the cross. The one who gave life now had his life taken from him. The one who gave healing was now hurting. The ancient of days felt the agony of days. The sun refused to shine, the birds stopped singing. The earth rocked and reeled in disbelief. In a six-hour window, God the Father put all of an attorney's worth of condemnation upon the shoulders of Jesus the Son. And Jesus said to his Father, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And then he declared, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. And his dead, cold, lifeless body was taken off the cross and placed into a borrowed tomb. And a stone was rolled in front of it. And Roman soldiers were positioned there so that no one would come and steal the body. And for the rest of Friday, it looked as if God did nothing. And all day Saturday, God said nothing. But early on Sunday morning, big brother got up. Early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose with all healing in his hands. Early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up and he conquered sin, death, hell, the grave, and he broke every chain. He broke every chain. He broke every chain. Jesus, big brother, got up. The reason you can mimic God is because God is your good daddy and big brother Jesus got up out of the grave. So this morning, don't focus so much on Simon Says, but please focus on the Savior Says. What you hear him saying, you say. What he tells you to do, you do. You ought to mimic God. A life of love, a life of light. And don't don't drink any convoluted version of love and life in our society. You feast by faith on God. He is your good daddy. And because big brother Jesus got up, you have power over the grave. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. 
Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. This morning, do you hear the chains falling? That's my prayer. That's what I ask God for. Please, in your church, let me hear chains falling. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. There are men and women who are bound up in pornea. There are men and women who use their lips not for thanksgiving, but for obscenity, coarse joking, and all of these things are reasons of why your wrath is coming. So Lord, help us not to have some cheap imitation of love. Help us not to dabble into darkness. Help us not to be defined and declared in darkness, but help us to be children of light. So, Lord, break every chain this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.